0: You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity, and politics, with Ali Emad. Welcome to episode 20 of the podcast, which features Anwar Iman, a historian and Islamic law professor at the University of Toronto. When I was starting this podcast, I wanted to get Professor Iman to talk about a historical topic. 20 episodes later, he's finally here, and our topic is very different and perhaps never more relevant. And that's about the impact that power, financial, cultural, or political, has on the law, and then how the law goes on to shape that very same power. In particular, we talk about the influence of power on terrorism financing law, academic freedom and the Palestinian question, religious accommodation, and more. But first, I asked him for his reaction to the horrific Abzil killings in London, Ontario, and whether terrorism charges against the perpetrator were appropriate.
1: For the first week, I found myself thinking twice before I went out of the house. I remember telling my wife that I just am having a hard time finding my way out. I think it was four or five days before I left the house. Not because I particularly felt rationally that there was a threat against me in my neighborhood, but it's just there was a sense of fear that just overtook me or anxiety, really, just general anxiety at the time around it, knowing that I have friends who dress differently, who look different um than I do. In my context, I can mostly pass, and, and I was well aware of that. But it was a it was an opportunity to reflect on where I live and really think twice about the nature of my neighborhood. So that certainly happened right away. Then of course your mind my mind turned to what will be the charge and Everyone was. All the political leaders were quick to say how this was a a terrorist act. But of course, I was waiting for the prosecutor who to decide whether or not there would be terrorist charges. And on the one hand, it's you know the concern was that is terrorism really just a charge for black and brown bodies? If you'll recall, Alexander Bissonnet, who shot up the Quebec mosque, was not charged with terrorism. So. The worry was, would this also be one of those charges without the terrorism charge, raising equality grounds? But, but I have an article coming out in the Manitoba Law, Law Journal soon where I explore the terrorism charge itself. And if you look at the the way in which the charge or the, the legislation is drafted, and then you look at the way the legislation is implemented in the process of terrorism prosecutions, there's a fundamental problem with the terrorism provision in the criminal code. And it's simply this. Ultimately, to address the issue of the special purpose to commit terrorist offenses. It's a special intent charge. You have to show that somebody has an intent to commit this offense with these kinds of terrorist grouping type things in mind. It's an ideology crime, right? It's it's, It's a thought issue. And how do you prove what someone thinks? Well, ultimately, in the prosecutions that I've seen, you look to someone's library, whether it's the library on their phone or their iPad or their computer or the library in their personal collection at home. Now, keep in mind, I'm a trained medievalist. And one of the things I wondered was, how did the Inquisition examine its litigants? And it turned out that they too, in the medieval period, looked at what people had in their libraries. What did they read? on the assumption that what they read must therefore inform what they think, do, and how they'll act, or as a predictive feature of it. And that's what made me appreciate the fact that the problem isn't the equal application of the terrorism offense. The problem is the way the terrorism offense has been defined in the legislation and how it's implemented in reality. It's backwards, it's medieval, and it has no place in a modern rule of law system.
0: I had a similar thought about the discussion about terrorism charges, and I think it's something where when we did have those, the terrorism offenses that involve the non-white people, then there was a clamor to have that labeled somehow with a offense more serious than the offenses that were generally available, and then there was always this question of, you know, when you have a, a white offender, then that person has a mental illness, and I wonder whether, rather than trying to have white offenders labeled as terrorists, whether it just makes more sense to say these other offenders shouldn't uh, shouldn't have an ideology attached to their offense. It could equally be labeled as as mentally ill and. That's the basis on which they're going forward. I mean, it seemed to me that you would want to lay a terrorism charge if you're trying to track the money that's perhaps funding someone to engage in these activities or if there's an organized cell. But for these sort of lone wolf attacks that don't seem to be organized, it just seemed like it was really out of place. Uh, I don't know if you had a, a similar view on that.
1: I just maybe to to address the issue of terrorism financing is an interesting thing to also think about. We recently released a report at the Institute of Islamic Studies in partnership with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. The report is called Under Layered Suspicion. It's found online at www.layeredsuspicion.ca. And the report examines three audits of Muslim charities. And what we identify as a problem is, in fact, Canada's anti-terrorism financing regime. Anti-terrorism financing operates in two different ways. There's the criminal prosecution after the fact, which is what we've been talking about, about today, uh, thus far, but there's also the pre-crime element—the anticipation of financing towards future endeavors of terrorist activity. How do you control for that? And what's interesting is that the metrics currently in operation over-determine Muslims as prone to terrorist financing. Um, so, for instance, in 1989, the global community was concerned about the drug trade, and to limit the financial lucrativeness of that fee- of that trade. They created the Financial Action Task Force, a multilateral organization tasked with recommendations to forestall money laundering. And that was a big deal back in 89. After 9-11, they added some recommendations for state parties to abide by in support of uh, combating terrorist financing. What the FATF says is that every country needs to create guidelines to combat terrorist financing. Among those guidelines was a recognition or a claim at least that the charity sector represents a site that's vulnerable to being co-opted for terrorist financing purposes. And every state is required to then determine how it's going to go about locating terrorist financing sources. It's what's called a risk-based assessment model or an RBA. In 2015, Canada announced its RBA on terrorist financing and identified 10 organizations that pose the greatest threat for raising terrorist financing in Canada. Of the 10 groups, one is Sikh, one is Tamil, and the other 8 are all Muslim and Arab identified, which means that according to the government of Canada, 100% of the terrorist financing risk maps onto religious and racial minorities. 80% of all terrorist financing risk maps directly onto Muslim Muslim Canadian groups. Now, to me, that's a problem in and of itself. So even if we want to say, sure, it's one thing to apply terrorist crimes to financing of terrorism in sort of ideal terms and abstract terms, but when you start looking at the way in which implicit, and in this case, explicit bias structures it, I'm not even sure we get that right.
0: You're exactly right there. A couple episodes I had moments moment say, on who was discussing white uh, supremacist groups that were operating essentially with impunity in Canada and generating funds, and particularly in Alberta, gained a really big stronghold over there. And, and then we saw these groups in action during the Trump insurrection around the time of the 2020 US election. Even this point about the law enforcement disproportionately targeting Muslims that we've seen since 9-11... Even more recently, I mean, you were instrumental in founding the support line for Muslim students who were being approached by CSIS, you know, the the Canadian spy agency. Do you see that as being an ongoing issue? We're now several years after 9-11. Has there been any positive developments in this front or has it just continued in the same vein?
1: Well, I think that on the one hand, you see a certain level of systemic bias, implicit bias, that took shape in 9-11 and festered across all agencies within the government. So part of the problem that we deal with is a culture, a culture that sees the Muslim as prone to terrorist activity. So that's one part of the problem. And that is an ongoing challenge for us 20 years out from 9-11 as we come to the 20th anniversary. But number two, there is a recognition that these formal sites where the government is formally and expressly overtly targeting Muslims, and they know it, it's there in their policies, those areas are now being subject to more overt conversation. With the hotline, for instance, we certainly raised concerns around targeting students at the university, but from what I understand, now that we've helped create a resource for students, all that means is that CSIS and other spy agencies will go to other parts of the Muslim community that don't have these resources available to them. And so we're hearing about the ongoing knocking on doors by CSIS officials of others in the Muslim community, but not necessarily students. So whereas our calls to the hotline have gone down, calls from other sectors are continuing, if not going up. The charity sector remains highly highly over regulated, over overly scrutinized in certain ways relative to other communities who are able to participate in activities, many of which engage in in highly problematic endeavors themselves. So as the report in our report, we show that groups that are engaged in conversion therapy or supporting human rights violations abroad, there's connections there too, but those organizations remain registered. But also there's just the way in which a lot of these existing policies that target Muslims operate in the background with secret evidence. And so we're Never part of the formal mechanism or schemata of government activity. So th- there's lots of issues, there's lots of problems, there's lots of areas of, e- of agreement and one of the nice things that we've been able to do is force conversations that weren't happening before. And I think the fact that those conversations are being received, are being heard and are and there's a now a space for them more robustly now is a, is a market sign, does involve and does require a greater attentiveness to detail and knowledge dissemination so we have stories or anecdotes. We have sentiments or feelings about 9-11. The onus upon us to in challenging these, these paradigms is to show data, show the proof. We, we, we are still in the process of collecting that.
0: There's been a number of really good initiatives to, to try to capture the data. I mean, we discussed the hotline, which, you know, my classmate, Nader Hassan, was uh, came on this podcast and talked about. And, and of course, the way we know each other is that uh, you were my Islamic law professor at the University of Toronto that's right. 15 years ago. Or, and so I actually wanted to talk about the University of Toronto and, and the international backlash that's going on sure. uh, over there perhaps it's been you know just in this past year where it seems like the rhetoric around the Palestinian question or the narrative around the Palestinian question is, has shifted in some ways to more let's say, sympathetic towards the Palestinian cause. And and, and that's really not been the, mir- the media narrative in North America or anywhere, really, uh, over the past 10 or 15 years that you know that we've been following this since, since the time of the law school. The law school itself, when I was there, was, was quite an interesting place. The Jewish high holidays were off for the law school. I don't think they were off for the rest of the university. We had lunchtime seminars that featured judges from Israel defending the, you know, building a wall in Jerusalem or or other issues. Uh, One of the professors was the president of the Canadian Jewish Congress. And, you know, then now we've got more recently this issue where the university withdrew an offer of director of its human rights program to Professor Valentina Azarova, who was recommended by the hiring committee. And essentially, this was due to objections from a sitting Canadian judge who was basically representing the views of the Canadian Jewish community. and. I think Professor Azarova, I mean, I've, I've looked up what her views were on the Palestinian question. And they're hardly extreme views. So I had some doubts on the legality of, of Israeli settlements. But the striking thing when you look at all the evidence and, and including the open letter that uh, you and a number of professors wrote to the university that the law school reversed course and its justification for doing so for withdrawing the offer was really, really flimsy. Can you talk about what troubles you most about this incident? I mean, from my side, it's, you know, there's an expectation that law school in Canada would have procedural fairness, would be upholding justice. And this really just doesn't seem like the university is at all bothered by the backlash they're facing.
1: That's a great question. There's so many places to start with on this issue. And as you know it, I've been among a group of faculty who dissented over the decision. And it's been a matter that I've been closely involved in since it first broke into the news cycle. This issue speaks to a number of important things. And this is really about North American academic environments. Um, how free are we academically? And what are the implications of that academic freedom for things like innovation and so on? Now, the University of Toronto has one of the most daring statements of purpose that i've seen at any university it talks about being a site for radical critical thinking even thoughts that make you know our society or even the university uncomfortable and that includes everyone at the university staff students faculty donors, right? And, you know, let's keep in mind that as we're dealing with the Azarova affair, this is the university in which Jordan Peterson still maintains a membership as a tenured faculty member, even though his views have offended so many already. So we need to keep in mind that that's the vision of academic pursuit of knowledge is academic freedom maximizes the possibility for innovation. It's also a vehicle for uh, expanding the scope of what counts as a voice, a voice within the academic environment. We sometimes separate the issue of diversity from excellence, but the argument at the university, and rightly so, is that diversity is a sine qua non of excellence. Without diversity, you have a homogenization of thought. And therefore, you preclude other voices that might offer different perspectives. So you can't have excellence without diversity, and that diversity might be uncomfortable. And so when we think about all of that, we need to recognize that the university needs to maximally include voices on all sides of an issue. Now, here in the human rights context that we had here at the the Faculty of Law, Dr. Azzarova is a very talented, gifted scholar, one who was um, unanimously selected by committee made up of Professor Audrey Macklin, an administrator who was an assistant dean to the Faculty of Law, and a fellow who was at the International Human Rights Program. The three of them selected her from a pool of approximately 140 candidates. The question is, what value should be attached to that committee? In a university setting, we talk a lot about collegial governance. Collegial governance, however, has been on the wane in the last decades, as universities have become much more business-minded, economically-minded, and so on. The increased number of staff taking on middle management positions has expanded. On the one hand, that means that the faculty themselves are left to do the research and writing, which they're trained to do. They're not bothered with the day-to-day details of running an academic program. On the other hand, it means that they're not as closely aligned with how you run a university in the delivery of that academic program and we need to better understand and appreciate that academic freedom and collegial governance go hand in hand without effective collegial governance there's not going to be enough protections for academic freedom and in this case you had a collegially formed committee whose decision was completely overridden by a dean without consultation and that's a huge issue for us but second We run the risk now, uh, many universities, And the Ivy Leagues are one version of this, but public universities across North America are increasingly having to turn to private philanthropy to support innovation at a time where public funding of universities has gone down. And whereas when we have public funding of universities, there's a process by which we can assess the funding, contest the funding, or elect the funders into and out of office. So there's a process of some degree of accountability associated with public funding of higher education. With Private philanthropy, that kind of accountability, just isn't there. So as administrators take over the role of, let's say, fundraising in the absence of faculty, the question then becomes, is it the dog or the tail that's doing the wagging? Is it advancement officers looking for philanthropy wagging away at the university, showcasing the university? Or is it the university driven by its academic leaders showcasing what the university can and should do and then pursuing funding to support that innovation now i myself am a director of an institute the institute of islamic studies and i'm working on philanthropically founding a series of initiatives that rely on private funding and so i too am part of this this mechanism of supporting innovation i think it's important i think that in the absence of public expenditures I don't have a lot of options other than the private sector. The issue for me, though, is how do you govern transparency and accountably when you have to also have a have a mission to secure private support to support your colleagues and the amazing and innovative work they have to do, or even if not necessarily that, push a button that hasn't yet been pushed. So for instance, let's take our report on, on audits of Muslim charities. The fact is that there was nothing looking at Canadian charities and their audit and the audits of them on on security grounds at the time that we published. There's now since been a second report that's come out by the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group. But moreover, globally speaking, there has been no report globally that looks as closely at the way the audits are conducted as ours. That takes innovation. That's what innovation means. It means doing the things that nobody else is doing. And if we're not able to allow for these visions of innovation, then all we'll do as academics is perpetuate the same old story. So when it comes to Israel and Palestine, which in this case, the donor at issue was a federal judge, a donor, an alum, and was prompted by the Center for Israel Jewish Affairs to intervene, presumably on behalf of the Jewish community, though I think many in the Jewish community take umbrage to that. Um, and so I want to be mindful that this isn't about the Jewish community as a, as a whole. But this was a person that was concerned about Dr. Azarova's scholarship on Israel. And that's plain and simple. And either we recognize that we are going to have to have an open space for conversations on difficult topics or not. And if we allow donors to dictate in general how we have these conversations, then the scope of innovation, the scope of freedom implied by academic freedom is therefore circumscribed. So those are the big issues that I have. I mean, and then thirdly, of course, this particular incidence raises the, the issue of a Palestine exception to academic freedom. This has been a brought, an issue brought up among a number of sectors and a number of uh, commentators on this issue and others. It's not new. It's been happening in North American universities in the past. The Stephen Salaita case at the University of Illinois was another example of this. What we're trying to do at the university in the wake of this is to how do you center Palestine? But what we're finding is even if I want to programmatically center Palestine as an academic program, I now know that I have to not only anticipate challenges to the academic vision, I have to anticipate challenges to it from third-party lobby groups, donors that support those lobby groups who also donate to the university, and and officers within the university wanting to support those donors. And that's the bigger problem here, is how do I program how do I center a conversation on Palestine in this environment? It's no longer just an academic issue. It's now an issue of institutional politics, of institutional economics, and it raises the real question as, as to whether or not I can freely do this. And, and lastly, in the Canadian context, one of the things that we also find if I wanted to center Palestine in this conversation at a, at a public university that increasingly relies on private philanthropy for innovation. The question then also comes, well, could I tap the Palestinian civil society community for funding in this regard? And then we come back to the charity section again. As it turns out, there is not a very robust Palestinian civil society because in large part, whenever it does come to bear, when we do see Palestinian civil society develop and take space in our public sector, they then become subject to the very same national security metrics of anti-terrorism financing that I talked about earlier. And so it's a big circle that is not just about universities and private donors. It's as much about the state and its anti-terrorism financing regime, which in this case creates a bit of a bulwark towards academic freedom.
0: Now, there were a number of resignations that followed this decision. And it does seem like there is the silencing that's gone on 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 a number of levels. I think the shift from universities into being more business minded is certainly one really key consideration. I think when you when you speak towards academic freedom, I think even just generally, when you look at the, let's say, the definitions of Islamophobia versus the definitions of anti-Semitism and definition of anti-Semitism is accepted and is applied you know much more broadly than than the islamophobia the term islamophobia can be used i think even in the wake of the abzal killings i think people were still in some quarters reluctant to even acknowledge islamophobia as a thing and i think that was also really striking
1: Well, I think the terminology they would use is it's been funny watching the sort of policing of uh, the lexical policing that I've seen on the term Islamophobia during the M103 hearings. There was a motion a number of years ago to at the House of Commons simply to study systemic racism and discrimination, including Islamophobia. And when that motion was put for a vote and then later after having succeeded, then subject to a series of, of hearings by the Standing Committee for Heritage, it was amazing watching the right, the right-wing party, the Conservative Party of Canada, contest the very term, saying, "Well, no, we need to be able to criticize Islam as part of our free speech, but we need to not uh, allow for anti-Muslim hate." And the thing is, is that what's really interesting is now, of course, after the the killings in London, Ontario, very few politicians, political leaders at the federal level, have been announcing that same position. It's almost been de rigueur to talk about Islamophobia as a well-recognized evil and one that we must combat. And in fact, the government, all the major parties have announced the desire to have a summit on combating Islamophobia. So I'm not so sure that it's as debated as it was just two, three, four years ago. But having, having said that, it is something that we still need to figure out what it looks like. The interesting thing about Islamophobia that also makes it complicated is that it crosses so many intersectional lines, poverty, race, gender, educational levels, migration status, things like that. It is a complicated phenomenon precisely because Muslims are so are so diverse. And so trying to capture Islamophobia in a neat terminological definition can be hard when the subjects or those who are victims of Islamophobia, can range. And so that's also something we need to think about more robustly.
0: Earlier, you you brought up Jordan Peterson at the University of Toronto, and I have to confess that there's some parts of his philosophy that I find particularly attractive. And I think those were uh, in the context of his you know, debates with Sam Harris on a religious ethic versus a purely rational ethic. And I was thinking that, you know, when I was much younger, the debates on religion, if we were going to have a debate on religion, were more on the theological principles like Jesus, the son of God, is it, is it wrong to eat pork? You know, we're discussing which religion is better than the other in some way. But it seems to me now, a shift over the last, say, 10 years, 10, 15 years or or more, uh, it's shifted away from that kind of discussion. And it's now about a discussion of, are you allowed to have a religion? Do we need to accommodate your religious belief? And with the rise of scientific and humanist and, and atheist worldviews, I'm wondering whether you've also noticed this shift and in the context of you know, your scholarship in, in Islamic law and, and people regulating their lives through religious canon. What do you think it means if you've noticed the same thing?
1: Well, you know, I've noticed it in the lens of what some would call militant democracy or illiberal liberalism, where religion becomes the ongoing site by which the state performs its identity. I mean if if you look at, for instance, in Europe, the European Court of Human Rights has some really interesting jurisprudence on this. There's the the Dahleb in Switzerland case and the Leila Shaheen case, where both involved women who were wearing headscarves in the public school setting and lost their cases on grounds that even though there was a violation of human rights, The state was allowed to perpetuate that discrimination in the interests of national security, democracy, or whatnot, and the court simply uses this doctrine called the margin of appreciation to defer to the state and its vision for itself. And then a few years later, there's Laozi versus Italy, where a father says that an Italian secular classroom shouldn't have the cross on the wall as it does. That's a violation of the state secular policy. And the government of Italy says, well, no, that's a cultural symbol and not a religious one. And the Court of Human Rights agrees with the government of Italy. And so what we have is a real problem, it would seem to me, about even identifying where religion is and who has it. I think we need to recognize that a lot of what we're concerned about regarding the possibility of religion, at least for me, and here I'm looking through the lens of law and social policy, is we're really looking at what's the political, cultural, moral salience embedded within the doctrine of secularism. And Saba the late Saba Mahmoud in her last book on Egypt, on cops and under the, the regime of Egypt, showcased how secularism really has Uh, the power to define for us who and what the state is, what the state is and who gets included the state. And there's a way in which what we see as law, particularly if you take in Quebec, for instance, the headscarf bill, or in, um, in Europe, these rules on the headscarf or halal food or whatnot. What's interesting isn't so much who they're targeting implicitly, in this case, Muslims, or in some cases, Jews, it's who they're not targeting, those who are otherwise seen to fall within the realm of the liberal-minded state. And so in these moments of illiberalism, of militancy, and a certain kind of democratic referendum-like spirit, what we're seeing is uh, a certain politics of inclusion and exclusion through the mechanism of of state instrumentalities. And that's what we're really seeing here. So does it mean that you can or can't be religious? No, it means you can be religious, but every state will have its favored religion and its disfavored one.
0: Yes, I had this discussion with Professor Azam Sharif. And what we sort of talked about was that this the illiberal liberalism was its own kind of religion and subject to its own cognitive biases. But I think we, we saw all of this 15 years ago, when province of Ontario and Canada was discussing the voluntary application of Sharia law for certain family law matters. And it seems now that That's a little bit removed from the public consciousness. But where do you see that debate going after all of this time?
1: When I first arrived in Toronto, that debate was hot and heavy. And it's how I initially cut stomach teeth on that, to be honest with you, having written about the issue myself. And I'm not sure we've ever really left the issue. Right. So, you know, sure, that was in 2005 or 2004, 2005 in Ontario. But in 2010, 2011, a number of states in the United States were legislating to ban Sharia, to ban Islamic law legislatively. And some of them adopted legislation, which was rather... Irrelevant or useless to that effect, but nonetheless symbolically signaled that. In some cases, like the state of Oklahoma trying to ban both Islamic law and international law, raising questions as to whether this is really about either of those two traditions or an existential sense of crisis about the quality of democracy at home, which we can make speculations on thereafter. So I don't think that we've ever really left that conversation. We may have left the very specific nature of that particular debate in Ontario, but we see it. We see it right now in Bill 21 in Quebec with the headscarf and the ongoing debate that headscarves and veils seems to create. We see it in the way um, International Development Day is structured around certain kind of feminist ideals that aren't necessarily open to Islamic ideals. Themselves And so as Muslim feminists try to craft a way forward with Islamic law and their feminist ideals, they're also marginalized along the way. So all of this is to simply say, I, I don't think that we have left that issue behind. I think the core issues around inclusion, legal pluralism, multiculturalism continue to remain ours to this day.
0: Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. For guest profiles, episodes, and show notes, visit www.musliminmoderation.com.